Surprise, motherfuckers! You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 261 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Yes, a new episode. I love dropping these when you least expect it. Today is thank you plant medicine day. At least if you listen to this as this episode is released on the 20th of February 2020. Thank You Plant Medicine is a global coming out campaign. The plan is for thousands of people to come out on social media worldwide with their stories of personal healing and transformation using the hashtag ThankYouPlantMedicine. If you want to take part, simply post your story and add the hashtag ThankYouPlantMedicine. I think it is important users of plant medicines come out of the closet. It's time to make psychedelics normal and caffeine-infected alcoholic lifestyles abnormal. As a tribute to this important day, I have two guests on the podcast. Later on, I will be talking with Thomas B. Roberts, PhD, about psychedelics and about his new book, Mind Apps. But before we get to that... I will be talking to director Farsin Tusi and we will be talking about his new documentary The Medicine which looks at the cultural and health significance of ayahuasca. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Um, Yeah, my name is Farsin Tusi. I'm a producer slash director of uh, television programming in Los Angeles. And you recently made a documentary about ayahuasca. Yes, correct. Um, We we did a documentary about ayahuasca and its effects, and we tried to cover the culture, the history, and the spirituality of of ayahuasca. So there's been a few um, documentaries in the past. Is there... Any new angle you've chosen to take or anything you focus on more than maybe some of the others? Well, most of the documentaries, and we did a little bit of research going into it. Um, we First off, I want to say we, we did the documentary because we think that ayahuasca can help people. Um, and, and it's a little daunting to research it on the web, um, all kinds of information about it. So we try to really focus on um, the, the science, the culture, the, the history, and, and make it a more ayahuasca one-on-one as opposed to, um, you know, the filmmaker going down to Peru and trying to, trying to, trying the medicine and, and his experience. So we tried to give a really broad overview, but in a very entertaining and informational way. Do you have any indigenous people in the documentary? We do. Our main shaman um, named Taita Juanito, he is um, from, a, from a tribe in Colombia. And uh, his, his tribe uh, is the Inga tribe. And they're descendants of the Inca. And um, he's completely indigenous. 
so you mentioned you were trying to look at the science. Do you mean like scientifically what the ayahuasca is actually made from or molecules and that? Or do you mean like scientifically how it works in healing or? I, I think a little bit of both. I think we try to tell the uh, viewer what the components are, um, what happens, and and try and talk to people who've been researching it to 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 see if there's a scientific explanation for for what happens. And and the takeaway from for me was that really that you know without bringing some spirituality or uh, you know if you would if you could say a leap of faith. Um, it's hard to, to, it's hard for science to really, um, explain the effects of ayahuasca. So did, uh, the people who made the film also try ayahuasca themselves? Um, yes, from, um, I tried ayahuasca obviously as a director. That's, I tried it. That's why I decided to do the documentary. Uh, it has such a profound effect on me, um, uh, for example, um, I stopped drinking hard alcohol after the first time I did it. Um, um, and it wasn't an intention. It just happened. Um, the, the other producers drank ayahuasca. Um, the editor drank ayahuasca. And, and we also took a couple of uh, um, um, on-camera participants. We took an actress named Annalyn McCord and an ex-NFL player named Kerry um, Rhodes. And they tried it. The NFL player, um, is he still active in the NFL? No, he's retired. And part of what he was worried about and why he he sought this medicine was, you know, I think um, um, the the possibility of CTE um, playing football and also having to put on such a macho um presence you know to, to be a football player you have to be a certain type of personality and i think that conflicted with who re- he who he really is he's you know um, you're not you're not supposed to be a kind gentle person on the field and i think he wanted to work through that and and get a better sense of who he is it's a bit funny because earlier today i saw on my twitter feed about an NFL player doing ayahuasca, changing his life, and I wasn't aware it was in from this documentary. <laughs> it was quite a funny synchronicities. Yes, that's our guy. And and the actress, what what was her angle? Her angle is she suffered through um, um, sexual abuse and the inability to be to to connect with others, uh, especially in in an intimate way. So she wanted to work through that. The The effects on her weren't as profound immediately. But a year later, she, she, she thinks that a lot of the intentions that she had going into it have all come started happening because of it. Ayahuasca is a bit different than other psychedelics. Like, for instance, you can, on your own, I guess, uh, take mushrooms and have some healing in the privacy of your home, hopefully with a sitter. But... Ayahuasca is, um, uh, if you buy it finished, I guess, uh, it's, but it's hard to make if you don't know what you're doing. But if you manage to get it finished and brewed, uh, it, uh, it might be a bit too intense for people to do it in the privacy of their own home without 
uh, any sort of experienced sitter. And for this reason, I think it would be, it's hard for me to imagine a day in the future when it's uh, legal in the way that anybody can use it. Uh, what do you think about that? Um, I agree. Um, I think all psychedelics have benefits. Um, I think that um, ayahuasca is um, a class of its own. I think uh, it's more spiritual in nature, although certainly uh, psilocybin can be spiritual. I think um, man-made psychedelics such as LSD and MDMA could be considered mind-opening, but I, I'm not so sure if they're spiritual in, in nature. But that's just my opinion. Um, and I agree that the, the scalability of, of ayahuasca is, is an issue. Uh, I think that everybody suffers from trauma and everybody, in a way, needs something that's not uh, pharmaceuticals. And uh, ayahuasca is a great great substitute for, for pharmaceuticals. I was at a film festival in, some, um, in Cairo, and a doctor got up and, and said, um, you know, uh, nice film, um, but I'm a doctor and I think it's dangerous. And, um, and she wanted some sort of response. I, you know, my response was like, look, you know, that's great. That's your opinion. Fantastic. But she wanted more. And I think what I said was very simple. If, is it, if, if it were for me taking a, you know, lifetime of antidepressants or doing ayahuasca, the choice is clear. Um, I would do ayahuasca. And, and I firmly believe that uh, it can help people, especially with depression or PTSD. And, um, and how do we mass market it? I don't know. I don't think it's mass marketable. Uh, I'm not even sure if there's enough plants to, to, to supply what people really need. But that's just my opinion. I imagine that it would have to be more like uh, in the same way that we have churches today, some sort of temples in every city and you can go there and do your uh, ceremonies I think that would be a, probably a safe way and then I guess some people need to do it with a um, um, you know I mean you can uh, make it so you can do it more alone with a sitter I mean sometimes I find if there's, it's a big circle it can be a bit distracting um Agreed, especially the Colombian version, which is what we feature, has a lot going on <laughs> during a ceremony, um, and and they do they do say, for example, the people who who study under Taita, um, you know, he encourages them to 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 drink alone to to get to know the medicine, um, but the medicine they drink is something that was uh, you know brewed with a lot of love and intention and, and good intentions. Um, you know, um, it's not something you can cook up in your kitchen, I don't think, um, and, and, and do it at your home if you're, if you're a novice. The thing with, uh, the safety also is that it's, um, uh, from my experience and studies, it is uh, very safe. The danger comes when you start mixing it with other things or if you like drive your car while you're drinking it, I guess that would be very unsafe. But if you just uh, sit down in a circle and, and, and drink it and you haven't mixed with anything else like any other drugs or alcohol or something, then uh, it's 
practically impossible to have a, uh, something unsafe happen. Uh, it could be not safe for your mind temporarily, maybe. Correct. I, I've had a lot of um, tough ceremonies and and uh, and I think that um, one of the last ones I had, I had the feeling of dying and they call it a spiritual death and it was probably the, you know, you know, some of the toughest hours of my life, but it was, um, you always have that in the back of your mind and that the sun will come up and you'll be okay. Um, as hard as it, it can be. And this is the thing, this is not a rec recreational drug. Uh, if you want to call it a drug, this is really not that at all. This is not something for, for, uh, tripping. This is, this is hard work and, and uh, between the vomiting and, and everything else that goes on and what you experience, I think people need to know that this is not for fun. Lately, I've been reading a lot of books about near-death experiences and usually the people who are in a car accident and survive, uh, the type of healing they receive from surviving is it's very similar to the type of healing you get when you have a death experience with ayahuasca. So ayahuasca could be a very safe method of having a near-death experience because it's quite healthy to to die before you have to die for real because you you can save a lot of uh, time uh, and not waste life uh, when you actually know what it feels like to die. And, and for me, for my experience, it, it, it felt, um, and I was suffering really um, a terrible depression um and and i had lost faith in the medicine and, and almost everything and this one ceremony just to give you a quick story um in the middle of the night i was sleeping i was basically you know screw this i'm just going to sleep i'm not going to go taste drink another cup of this this is a, it really tastes terrible i can't emphasize that and um and i'm like i'm not going to go have another cup i'm just going to sleep um Titus sent his guy to wake me up and you know he asked me whether I had connected with the medicine and I said I hadn't and he said look uh, why don't you come up and, and watch Tita play music and I thought that was kind of odd um, and then Tita came over to me and said look um, um, I got a message and uh, I have a solution for you and you need to drink out of the cup and Lo and behold, he had the solution. It was, it was, you know, it was agonizing. It was terrifying, but it literally um, allowed me to move on from everything I was feeling—the depression, the the shame, the guilt, everything that I was going through personally—and start a new chapter. And and this was over the summer of last year, so it's been about five or six months, and I can tell you that it's it's lasted to this. To this point, you know, obviously we have our day-to-day -day problems and issues, and I think, and I think those are natural. But I'm, I'm in no shape or form how I was before that experience, and and for me, that's what differentiates somebody like a Taita who who is getting, you know, messages. Uh, and I believe it, and believe you me, three years ago before I started in ayahuasca, I would have never thought that there would be a man who would be receiving messages from the sky or the spirit world. That wasn't me. I was a very black and white guy. And now I sincerely believe that whatever he saw, received, heard, 
or was instructed was um, was what I needed at the time, and it helped me. So, and I don't think um, a typical facilitator that you would find in a big city like Los Angeles, who's who who has some training, I don't think they're that in that deep with the spirit world or with the medicine the way that somebody like a Taita Juanito or others coming from, from the indigenous background are. I may be wrong, but I just feel that's just a different level. Having said all that, I think the medicine does its thing and it's 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 good to take with anybody, but it just it's a different experience for me that I'm I would have a hard time not do it not to do this with Taita again and go do it with with somebody else. I've seen and experienced many weird things, not just in ceremony, but what happens around it. So these days, I no longer, if if I meet a crackpot who says crazy things, I never, I don't dismiss them as I did before. If they say they saw Bigfoot, I go, yeah, well, maybe you did. I don't know. I wasn't there. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen people speak languages that they don't speak. You know, how do you explain that? And and you have to, all of a sudden, you have to really go and have faith in the medicine. And and they always said the medicine knows what you need. And I never really believed it till recently. So the horrible experience that made you not want to do it again, uh, in retrospect, was it because you were resisting facing things? Um, yes. Uh, I think for the longest time, I think there is, you know, if you don't have faith in the medicine, it just doesn't work the way it should. Um, and if you don't lose, con- if you don't let go of the control, um, then it doesn't do its thing. I think those are two big components. You got to have faith and, and have faith in a God, creator, universe, whatever you want to call it. And you have to let go. And it's hard for for most people, in my opinion. And it takes it takes it takes a while. And that, and this is why, for some people, it could be it could be um, they do it once and and they're fine. Or it could be somebody like me who's done it a lot of times and is just now getting the results. Having said all that, from the get go. Uh, it changed me. It changed me. It changed my drinking habits. It changed, made me a nicer, kinder person, more um, aware of the environment. Um, so I, I do believe that even on a, on a chemical level, it, it does change you. Um, the spiritual healing might be a little tougher. I always had some difficulty with that because I stopped drinking alcohol 10 years before I drank ayahuasca for the reason that I didn't like the feeling of being drunk because I didn't feel like I was in control. So when you drink ayahuasca and you're not in control, uh, I also had those issues and it took a lot of work to be able to, uh, especially I don't have a practice of meditation when I began with ayahuasca. So I didn't really have that calmness of the mind. So that can really send you into like a a washing machine of uh, experience it almost feels like yeah i i agree and i think going back to the alcohol i think um you know i work in a very difficult demanding um business and i think it was just a coping mechanism right so you know um i was because the complete opposite it's um it's it's looking inside and facing your demons and um and and that's i think the toughest toughest thing for people to do is to look inward and a lot and you know you're 
you're putting yourself you're losing control you're looking at, at you know facing your traumas and issues and shadows and 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 there's and you're being asked to work through them um you know oftentimes in a setting with with um you know 20 or 30 other people puking so it's not the easy easiest uh easiest uh, task yeah my my uh self-medication was weed where that the weed made me uh, uh, more relaxed not as easily angry and all those things and the ayahuasca like in your case uh, made me stop smoking weed so now I can be it sounds hokey when you say it but now I'm like naturally high on weed I don't need to smoke it to be in the same state as before when I did and in fact now if I would smoke it it would be double the effect so I can't do it really because I, I get too chilled. So I just become like a zombie. So I don't like it anymore. So it kind of cured me of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Luckily I never um, got into weed, but, but I feel like, again, it's the same thing. It's, it, it helps people cope with, with their, uh, with their lives. And most people's lives are difficult. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not against uh, cannabis. It just I, I was using I was using it like a heroin addict, <laughs> you know, like as soon as you woke up, you know. Um, there's a, a thing that's been happening more and more, and that's that they're trying to make the ayahuasca so you don't have the uh, vomit effect. And I personally disagree because I don't think. Maybe they haven't been done in the Amazon or, or something, but the vomiting, I wouldn't want to do the ayahuasca if it, there was no vomiting or any other form of purge because it's almost like the highlight of the evening, you know, like it's so such a big part of the experience and it's not just, because I hate vomiting, but vomiting with ayahuasca is 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 a very different experience it it can be horrible but it can also be wonderful but always afterwards it's it, you feel so like a, a weight has lifted you know uh, no I, I agree especially in the colombian um in the colombian tradition the purging is a big big part of it um and uh, and ultimately you know sometimes you're you're vomiting and you're like wait a minute here i didn't have anything to eat all day what is this coming out you know and and it's it's something to me, almost supernatural what happens with vomiting and, and why would you not want to do that? Because you're essentially, and more and more science is finding that you're you're carrying your emotions in your stomach anyway. So it's part of the, it's deep healing. So I agree with you that, that, that you know, um, to try and make it, uh, this is why they call it the work, to try and make it easy on people so they don't vomit. It's just you may not get the same healing. I remember one time I, uh, for some reason, um, collected all the negative things in my life, in my stomach, and I kind of like told it to get the fuck out of me, and I vomited, and I, I like I exercised all the demons, and the vomit was the most horrible vomit I ever tasted. And then the next ceremony after that, I did the same thing, but instead of having the emotion of like get the fuck out of me like that I was more like lovingly letting it go like I, I you know I'm not mad like lovingly let it go and I I just vomited air <laughs> which was so that, that was pretty cool wow yeah 
It, it's interesting now. Now we may be getting a little out of line here, but but um, you know, one time um, the vomiting tasted really bitter. You know, and I asked them, I go, is this this is just the bitterness of, of the of the yahe, the ayahuasca coming out? And and their their answer was, no, that's all your resentments and fears and and all the bad emotions that are that are kept in your liver. And I found that very interesting. Yes, that that makes sense. Um, the documentary did it take long to do? Uh, did you go down to Colombian film as well? Yes, we we shot in Costa Rica at a place called Ritmia, um, which is a very um, clean, amazing place to do ayahuasca for the first time or second time. Taita practices there. It's it's um, it's they really take care of you. We also went to Taita's uh, retreat in Colombia, which is uh, two hours outside of Bogota, and um, and. Um, we had the opportunity to do it with um, to drink medicine with his grandfather, who at the time he's passed on now was 109 years old, and it was a really an amazing experience. I've been to Peru, Ecuador, and Brazil, but I've never been to Colombia. Um, how is the uh, how safe is it as a tourist? I mean, it, the reputation from the past is not so good, but has it is it better these days? You know, when we went, uh, we we also went to to the um, jungle um, to to an area called Putumaya, where he's from, where Taita Juanito's from, and it was very very poor. Um, you know, obviously the indigenous people in any country they don't really get the the the, the what's really <laughs> what's afforded to non-indigenous people, right? But I I didn't feel. There was poverty, and um, but I didn't feel unsafe. It's a very militarized country because uh, a lot of those areas were uh, where they they were having uh, uh, issues with rebels and and uh, not, uh, with drugs and uh, cocaine. So there's a heavy military presence. Um, I did not feel unsafe, um, and um, and it's a people were could not have been nicer. Um, it's a great country. I wouldn't hesitate going there. And the and the yahe, the ayahuasca, there is uh, very different than than uh, in in Peru. Uh, I don't know if you've done ayahuasca in Ecuador. I, I would imagine it's closer to the Ecuadorian version. I see. No, yeah, that's what I was thinking. They because they've always when I've been in those countries, they always say that uh, to go in the rainforest is the most dangerous in Colombia because the the cocaine dealers or manufacturers are hiding there, and if you, you don't want to bump into those people, you know. No, no, you don't. Um, um, but you know, luckily we had we had uh, you know locals showing us around. But I would imagine if you're on your own, it's a little different story. So um, uh, the film uh, is it uh, going to be uh, available online or in cinemas, or where can people see it? Yeah, we're we're doing some screenings around the country, uh, and in March it'll be available on Apple iTunes and Google uh, Play uh, globally. Um, we've had it, um, you know, we we we've, we've been having these screenings, and and a lot of it has been sort of like this, where you know I, I have a little chat with you know eighty five hundred and hundred fifty people, and 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 it's uh, it's been really for me really great because a lot of people just want to know what the experience is about 
and uh, and the reception of the film has been fantastic um, you know and you had asked earlier like yeah we took a long time to make this um, and we really did you know we were so close to the film we didn't know if we had a good film or a bad film or what because we had seen it so many times worked so hard on it it was so important for us um, but ultimately uh, the feedback has been fantastic and and uh, and uh, we we finally got a distribution deal, and they're they're taking it out on Apple iTunes and Google Play. And what, what was the name of it? Uh, the name of the documentary is, is the Medicine. Have you managed to see Jan Kunen's uh, VR ayahuasca uh, film called Cosmic Trip? I have not seen that one. No, because I was at a conference and they they had it there, and of course you can never make. Uh, virtual reality I was experienced because so much of it has to be f- coming from you as well from the inside but uh, I must say it was extremely close and it was inf- it was in fact there were moments in it where I almost for a moment forgot uh, I had not drank any and I was a bit like because I wasn't really in the uh, I wasn't ready to drink ayahuasca when I tried it. So I was like, oh, I'm not ready for this. But then I remembered it was just a VR. When you take off the goggles, you're fine. <laughs> but uh, he made it really well. And uh, you it starts in the Amazon. And you have a real uh, um, curandero or whatever in front of you. And you drink it. And then you go through the experience. But, um, of course, it can't match the real thing. But I thought it was pretty cool thing if you haven't seen it yeah I'll, I'll, I'll try and check it out so um what uh, plans do you have are you going to make uh, more documentaries or uh, other kinds of films yeah um yeah i'm hoping you know i come from a um you know background in reality television and, and film and I, i really would like to uh find myself doing um, documentaries that hopefully have a positive effect on, on people. So I'm looking for the next subject and, and see what we can do. So is there a, a, a website for the film if people want to check it out? Yes, it's the medicinedocumentary.com. Cool. Well, uh, well, thank you a lot for being on the podcast and for talking about your movie. No, thank you. Really appreciate your time. To check out the documentary, go to themedicinedocumentary.com. All right, now it's time for Thomas B. Roberts. Thomas is Professor Emeritus at Northern Illinois University and a former visiting scientist at John Hopkins. His latest book is called Mind Apps. Just as we can install apps on our electronic devices, we can also install mind apps in our brain-mind complex to expand our mental powers and creative abilities. Thomas B. Roberts explores in his book Mind Apps the many kinds of mind apps, including meditation and psychedelics, and he shows how mind apps allow us to generate new ideas and new ways of thinking. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking about my favorite subject, psychedelics. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? I'm a retired educational psychologist from Northern Illinois University. I taught the first course on psychedelics in a a university starting in 1982. I taught it through um, 2016 or 2012. 
And I've also written a couple books on psychedelics and edited and helped edited a couple others. My particular interest is not in psychedelics and psychotherapy, but in their use in the humanities and religion and in higher education in general. Um, so I take a different perspective on them, and I'm trying to interest the university communities in looking at psychedelics or what they can do for intellectual development. So how did you come in contact with psychedelics from the beginning? In 1965, I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut, and that's when Timothy Leary was in um, in the news a lot. So I wrote to Harvard and I got a copy of the Harvard Review that had an article about him. But that was just sort of background curiosity because I was interested in higher education. Then in 1967, I moved to Stanford to start a doctorate and helped drive to San Francisco. <clears throat> Uh, the, the radio was playing, when you go to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Well, that wasn't for me, but it was sort of nice background information. And then in 1967, I started my doctorate at Stanford. And in 68, I took a course called The Human Potential with Willis Harmon. And the students in that course were graduate students from across the university, many in engineering. And two students there, a married couple, discussed their first psychedelic experience. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone discuss psychedelics in their own experience. And what really surprised me was that out of this select group of about 20 or 25 graduate students at, at, at Stanford, I'd say most of them joined with their own discussion of their psychedelic experiences. And I had no idea that there were so many people doing psychedelics who weren't sort of, you know, septic, crazy, mad people the way they were shown on television. So that developed my interest. And then I was able to attend a lecture by Alan Watts, who was talking about religion, East and West, and the use of psychedelics in religion. So I realized one could get into this in an intellectually worthwhile way. And I had my first experience two years later at Lake Tahoe in California in February 1970. So that really got my interest going. And then after that, I've taken part in various conferences and, and lectures and so forth. So that's what got the ball rolling. Did you have anything to do with uh, the Bicycle Day celebrations? Oh, well, I invented it, yes. When Albert Hoffman first synthesized psychedelics on um, April 13th, I think it was, He absorbed a little bit and had an odd experience, so he realized uh, he had something odd. And on the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it was on the on the nineteenth. He went back and he took a what he considered to be a very very small dose, so so small it couldn't possibly have any effect. <clears throat> well, it was two hundred and fifty micrograms, which was a good solid hit, but nobody had any idea a chemical could be that strong. And um, he rode his bike home. This is during the war, and gasoline was not available in Switzerland, so I rode his bike home. And in honor of that trip, I, I invented the, something I call Bicycle Day. And it's uh, recognizing Albert Hoffman's first intentional psychedelic trip. By the way, there's a very good graphic novel out called Bicycle Day. I, I recommend it. It's done very, very beautifully. So from it, it wasn't a big, you know, sort of a rock event. Just uh, my family and some friends in our backyard got together. There were some children there. We just sort of 
took it easy. And we decided to have it every year. Uh, our weather in Illinois varies a lot in April. So on nice days, we had it in our backyard. And on rainy days, we had it in our house. And then I sent it out, started sending out notices, and um, it's caught on. So my main <clears throat> my main work is the work in my books and my writing. But psychedel- uh, the bicycle is what most people know me for. So that, <laughs> that was the beginning of Bicycle Day. And now, as you know, I mean, there are people all, all over the world who who celebrate it. So I'm, I'm very glad it's, glad it's caught on, but I wish people would pay more attention to my writing and my books. Yeah, it's a good thing also that they don't do LSD and ride bikes. I wouldn't recommend it, but that hasn't really happened, what I know anyway. Once in a while, I hear about someone who tried it and doesn't recommend it. <laughs> so in your books, uh, uh, what kind of angle do you take when you're writing about psychedelics? I try to show people the psychedelics are useful in uh, intellectual ways in the humanities and in some of the background ideas in the sciences. So I don't address psychotherapy, but I, I use the psychotherapy research that's been done as a way to talk about things that have been done and the things they've discovered. In doing psychotherapy, they've discovered these little nuggets of information They're very valuable to people in philosophy and in literature and history and so forth. And so, of course, the, psycho, the people doing psychotherapy just sort of see these as little things they've noticed. But I try to show people that these are uh, openings to doing new types of intellectual research. And um, it's, it's an uphill battle because most people who are interested in psychedelics, of course, are interested in psychotherapy. So in different books, I've tried to emphasize various things. I had one one book um, was a religious conference. Bob Jesse and I organized the Council on Spiritual Practices in 1974 and in 19, I mean 1994. And in 1995, we had a conference in California. So that book is out with the, the results of the conference. It's coming out again with a third title. The new title coming out this year will be Psychedelic Spirituality. And it's a collection of, of people from the conference who have written about the conference and their own experiences. My current year work, work is try to interesting people in the humanities to show that the things that the humanists are interested in are some of the side things that psychotherapists have run into. Things like how to approach truth, beauty, religion, sacredness, ways to interpret literature and movies, um, a way to do philosophy, not just about psychedelics, but using psychedelics in philosophy. So that's the real take that I, that I am working on. And the big idea is what I call mind design. And that's looking at psychedelics as one family, among others, of ways of, of influencing our minds. Meditation, hypnosis, um, brain stimulation, chanting, breath work, the martial arts, these are all ways. And what I, what I do is I call them mind apps. I use an analogy to say that just so we can install apps in our electronic devices and they become more powerful and we can do more things with them, we can install what I call these mind apps in our brain-mind system and do new things and make them more powerful. So that's so a mind app is like an app for the mind, but it's not um, 
an electronic app. Uh, it's a, um, a psychological app. Again, psychedelics are the ones I pay most attention to. So I'm getting trying to get people to see a much wider view of the human mind, one that includes all these different mind-body states that these apps can produce and explore them. Some will be useful, probably most will be curious, but not useful. So that's that's the big idea that I'm working on right now. Do you follow or are you a member of any religion yourself? Um, well, I, I attend the Congregational Church, but I consider myself um, to be an atheist. I, I figure that I don't see any reason somebody can't be in more than one religion at a time. Um, so I'd be, I consider myself partly a Congregationalist, which would be a kind of Christianity, partly a Buddhist, and partly an atheist. So um, I, I don't know whether to say I'm a follower or a hanger-on or, or what to call it. When you say atheist, do you mean uh, you don't know or do you mean you know that there's nothing? Well, I'll, actually, all actually, all you can do is not know because you can't really show that something doesn't exist except at a particular place in a particular time. So that's so I'd have to say that it, that um, I'm an agnostic with atheistic leanings. Because one would have to look everywhere to show that, that a God doesn't exist and you can't look everywhere. I'm always interested in people who use psychedelics that uh, are leaning towards atheism because I found uh, being more atheist before I started using psychedelics and then after I used psychedelics I became less of an atheist. Yes, I can certainly understand that. Actually, my experience was somewhat different. Because of my some of my psychedelic experiences, you know, the more intense, the high ones, I can see why people are interested in, in religion. In fact, psychedelics have, have piqued my interest in religion as something to be interested in as a series of ideas and experiences, not in a, in a narrow belief system. But I can certainly understand why people who either start out atheists see psychedelics as confirm their belief, or people who start out without a belief change their belief. I think what uh, the reason was I was an atheist was because I didn't, I thought the religious institutions and the man-made religious practices and books was silly. But then when I used psychedelics, it kind of liberated me from the human involvement and just made me... So I could look at all the religions with fresh eyes and ignore all the things that were obviously human involvement and just look at the core essential message of all the religions. My, my, my experience and as pretty much the same, and I've ended up in a very similar place that I can really under, I try to look at the mystical aspects of different religions. Uh, a, a priest that I know, a brother, used the image of a mountain, um, a religious a mountain of spiritual development, and all the various religions sort of live around the bottom of the mountain. But as you go up the mountain in every religion, they tend to, to drop their local orientation and to be more alike and if you get toward the top they become very much um, oriented toward mystical experience so that's the the image that i find useful 
So what psychedelic have, have you worked with yourself the most? Um, uh, LSD and um, some of the others, um, very little, you know, two or three, four times each. I've had ayahuasca four times. Um, I do not consider um, marijuana to be psychedelic, although I'm beginning to wonder about that because the new strains are getting are getting stronger. Um, I've had peyote a couple times, and um, let's see. I've never done DMT, and I think I'm too old for that now. And I'm 82 years old, and my liver and kidneys are not what they were 40 years ago. So I don't know whether I should try that. And um, MDMA I've had a couple times. I don't consider MDMA strictly a psychedelic. I consider the psychedelic family to be based on LSD, mescaline, peyote, and ayahuasca. And, other, and MDMA has sort of been adopted into the family. So we talk about it as psychedelics, but technically it isn't. But it's, sort of, it's become an adopted psychedelic. Like the work the MAPS is doing, for example, is they, they, they call it psychedelic, but it, it isn't really a psychedelic in the, in the stricter sense. I have a friend uh, about your age, and when he smoked DMT, he felt uh, chest pressure uh, on his chest, and then uh, a few months later, he, he had a heart attack, not related to the DMT, but the DMT put, I figured, pressure on his heart, you know, because it can be quite intense. So now he doesn't dare to do it again, uh, because uh, it can be quite a roller coaster ride. But if you've done ayahuasca, it's basically, in my opinion, the same thing. It's only that instead of five hours, it's just condensed to five minutes. So it's just quicker and faster. That's why it can be so intense. Yes, I have a pacemaker and two stents, so I'm wary of um, of DMT. Although I had I had them when I had ayahuasca. My ayahuasca sessions, I'd say, were probably moderate dosage. I haven't had a really strong one. Yeah, it's probably good to be careful if you have that. Um, do you, uh, when you mentioned that, I've always wondered: Can you feel if you have a that uh, a pacemaker? Can you feel it? No, I can't. I have to have it checked every once in a while. They tell me it's running all right, so that's how I know. They're probably quite uh, advanced by now compared to the ones I know I saw many many years ago. Um, yes, they're they're making them now so that actually they um, they don't have to be checked so often. Um, but anyway, it's it's an easy thing to do and, and worth doing. But you're also a, a founding member of Maps. Yes, that's right. Um, Rick's home, um, original home, is not very far from where I live. I live about sixty miles west of Chicago, and he lived a few miles north. And he came out to visit me. Uh, well, at least 1982, it might have even been a little before that. And he was getting the organization going, and we were trying to decide whether to call it, you know, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary. So we, we hit on MAPS, which, of course, is that, that nice MAPS acronym. And um, um, I, I wouldn't really consider myself, well, I was one of the founding members, but I never had any real uh, um, office in it. And, of course, I've kept going and been interested in ever since then and gone to many of their conferences. So when you've um, been uh, writing your books, have you noticed uh, 
publishers and readers are more interested now than it was when you began? Oh, certainly in the, in the general field it is. Um, because my books are more specialized, there hasn't, isn't much um, different. For example, I'm not writing about um, psychotherapy, so psychotherapy people are not so interested. And Michael Pollan's book that came out you know, uh, last year now was a, a wonderful opening for the field. And he writes extremely well and very um, open to the to readership. So that made a big hit. Mine are more, I, have, I hesitate to call them scholarly because they're not really heavy with with a lot of citations and so forth. But I'm, I, actually, I don't find, I find one of the more boring things about psychedelics is listening to people's trip tales. I just don't find people's descriptions of psychedelics interesting. I mean, once you've heard the first 40 or 50 ones, they get pretty repetitive. Um, so I'm interested not just in what the experience is, but what do we make out of the experience? Um, that's that's the, the question I'm raising. And um, Michael Pollan talks a little bit about what to make out of the experience and some of the ideas that come out of it. So my question is, not just what is the experience and what experiences do I have and do other people have, but how do we understand it? Are there ways we can use those experiences to develop our minds and understand our minds in new ways not, not, and also to produce new things we can do with our minds? For, for example, um, there, there's a lot of use of psychedelics and problem solving. And um, the question is, can we in, increase problem solving in most in all fields through psychedelic work. I'm interested in the philosophy of psychedelics, N- not just um, using philosophical ideas to think about them, but f- doing philosophy in them and in other mind-body states. Let me say I use the phrase mind-body state rather than state of consciousness. And the reason I do that is the word consciousness has so many different meanings that when people talk about consciousness, and they get together with other people. They're all using the word consciousness, but they're actually talking about very different kinds of things. So I talk about mind-body states, meaning just the the state of mind and body at that particular moment. This the kind of thing that Charlie Tart called state of consciousness. But I'm using it. This is his meaning, but calling it a mind-body state, so as not to confuse it with the other uses of the word consciousness. So my question is, what can we do with these mind-body states? What do they teach us about our minds? And do they provide insights into other fields? And that's the direction I'm trying to get people to think in. To paraphrase, I liked something Terence McKenna once said. He said, like, the mind is like water in, like, a, a jug or something. And then when you take psychedelics, it liberates the water. Or, or like a blanket, it, like, the mind unfolds. Oh, that's a nice image. I like that. Yeah. Um, I've read only one of McKenna's books, The Food of the God ones, which I liked a great deal, but I haven't read any of the others. Because that could explain, I mean, if if indeed all atheists are correct, it, that could explain why you can have a spiritual experience because your mind is not fully being used as much as it could when you take psychedelics it unfolds so much that it's so amazing that uh, you can't uh, give yourself credit um, I'm always skeptical about well I was going to say my psychedelic experiences but also my ordinary state experience so 
um, if I have something, let's say a psychedelic experience, which it seems to be very sacred and very spiritual, the question is, um, I don't necessarily accept that feeling as being accurate because I know my mind it might be inaccurate. So I'm always skeptical about all my experiences, even though, you know, in psychedelics, there's that experience of this is true. This is really true. This is profoundly true. Um, but I don't, I, I say, well, that's a feeling just like you might have music turned way up loud and it seem very loud. The sense of truth is turned up very loud. I use an idea I call a, a, a um, real stat of the mind. I think that's one thing psychedelics do. And just as we turn up a rheostat to increase the heat or temperature or an amplifier, just because something is amplified doesn't mean it's more true or less true. It just means it's louder. That is, our, our psychological perception of it is louder. And I apply that to my spiritual experiences. And I say, well, they might, these are spirit spiritual experiences, but they're like magnified or amplified. That doesn't make them truer or it doesn't make them less true. It's just that just as uh, colors can be more intense and, and color and feel and um, feelings and uh, sounds can be more intense, internal things can be more intense too. And we have to recognize that psychedelics, uh, well, Stan Grout calls them amplifier of, of, of experience. I think that's exactly the right way to look at it. And just as I'm skeptical of my ordinary awake state, I have to carry that skepticism over to my psychedelic state. So what do you mean when you talk about uh, something being spiritual? Can it be a an atheistic worldview and still be spiritual? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I think spir spirituality um, is um, similar to... Um, Well, let's say the sense of truth, or you know that the feeling, this is real, this is really real, this is realer than real, okay? Now, that doesn't mean the whole looking at it is realer than real. It means our sense of real reality is amplified. And I'd say the same thing with spirituality. Or with psychedelics, you can like hear music for the first time or see beautiful nature for the first time. Those are amplified. But just because they're amplified, that doesn't make them true, or that doesn't make them false either. It's just in, as if we had an amplifier for sound. It increases the the subjective experience. And that doesn't mean it's true or false. It just means it's amplified. And our problem is supposing that just because something is amplified, and it might be an idea, you know, it's common to have like a, oh, I have this really great idea while I'm tripping. And then afterwards you look at it, well, it's not such a great idea. I think the same thing applies to all psychedelic experience. Now, also, though, that can help us understand people who've had very intense non-psychedelic spiritual experiences. You know, that we can understand why they became more spiritual or understand the experience that they had. So it's very handy for that particular perspective. But that's... It's the, the intensification doesn't make something true or false. It just means it's more powerful. I don't know if it's true if Timothy Leary took LSD on his deathbed, but would you, could you consider doing something like that? Um, I actually haven't thought about it until you asked me. Um, um, I don't know. I'm... I'm I'm, I'm absolutely unsure of how I should look at that. Of course, Aldous Huxley did too. 
Um, it depends on the, on the mind of the person taking it, I guess. Um, so I don't know. I hope I won't have to wait. Well, I hope I can wait a long time before I find out. What uh, makes me nervous about it is if there is indeed an afterlife, uh, I would want to get, go there like in a clear mind. But maybe if you die and you leave your body, maybe the psychedelic effect stays with the body. I don't know how it works, really. That would be fun to know, but there's no way of knowing and, and reporting back to people. So have you, uh, when you wrote this book about um, mind apps, you looked only at psychedelic apps for the mind or other things as well? No, basically only only at psychedelics. I mentioned um, this this whole realm of other mind apps, but there was more to I had enough more than enough to do right to to go into psychedelics. But actually, someone could write a, a parallel book, you know, with um, brain stimulation or meditation or breathing techniques or contemplative prayer and so forth, because I want people to, who are interested in psychedelics to see psychedelics as just one family among all these other mind app families, because we tend to focus just on the one we pay attention to. But there are all these other ways of investigating and developing our minds. And to make something even more interesting, what happens if we would compose, uh, compose several of these in one recipe, let's say psychedelics and uh, heavy breathing and brain stimulation? We would produce mind-body states that have never been produced before. It'd be like working with chemicals and developing new molecules that have never been developed before. And we can do this with our minds um, and see if, if they're just curiosities or they may be useful there. And I, I think with the parallel of chemistry again is that most new chemicals are just curiosities, but a few are really worthwhile, and the worthwhile ones are very worth finding out about. For example, I'm sitting here and looking at plastic on my computer, and that, and that of course, is, is a synthetic chemical. And so we, have, we can develop these synthetic mind-body states that have never been developed before by combining, combining mind apps into recipes that have never been combined before and just see what comes out of them. And not only different recipes, but different amounts of them, you know, a heavy dose or a small dose or a lot of heavy breathing or a little heavy breathing. So if we consider them ingredients, the number of possible things we can combine is practically without limit. And this is what I would like to get people to see about the human mind is we can develop it much beyond our ordinary default state and the states of just using one mind app at a time, like meditation or hypnosis or psychedelics. And we can produce synthetic mind states that have never been produced before. They might just be curiosities, or some of them might be very interesting. For example, I think that uh, healing would vary according to the mind state we're in. And we could learn to, do, we could learn to increase healing in, in different mind-body states. And perhaps um, performance, like when coaches sort of get teams sort of worked up for a game, what that they're doing is a type of mind-body working up to get them ready to go. Or when actors go onto a stage, they go on basically in a, a, a briefly, briefly sort of forgetting who they are and being the becoming the person on the stage. So there are all these possibilities of using our minds in new ways. That's what I find most intriguing is what can we do with our minds that we don't know we can do with them yet?
And that's basically the, the central idea of the book Mind Apps. Have you uh, seen the book by Rupert Sheldrake called Science and Spirituality? No, I haven't. I, I know I haven't seen it. In that book, basically, he he's as a scientist, he looks at praying, going on a pilgrimage, all these different spiritual practices, and he uh, tries to see the scientific benefit of of doing those different things. Uh, and uh, in fact, the book inspired me to try and figure out a pilgrimage I could do. And he, he even suggests do something that's not too far away for your first try. But, but, you know, just the act of going on a pilgrimage will create something in your brain. Uh, it doesn't really matter what where you pilgrim pilgrimage to, you know. Well, that's good. I'll have to take a look at that. Does he talk about combining different... Um Ways of doing pilgrimage together, like meditation and, let's say, hypnosis or psychedelics, or does he treat them one at a time? Yeah, it's quite uh, one 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 thing at a time. He just go. He basically just tries to show that there is scientific validity behind all these different spiritual practices. That they have a, even though if you don't believe in God, they still have a healing, a meaning of healing. You know. So if people want to read your books, where can they find them? Well, Amazon has has them, and uh, the price is really low. It's only $12.15. And also, the publishers, uh, Inner Traditions has them. I think it's the same price. Uh, and, of course, um, you can buy them in other online places or order them through the bookstores. But probably easiest just to order, order them online. And I, I've written it to try to be... Um, not too scholarly and to make it available to the ordinary reader. Um, and also, um, I've, I've tried a new thing when I refer to something that in, in a chapter and I, there's something in the notes at the end of the chapter, I bold-faced the words in the chapter. So as you're reading, you run across a bold-faced word or phrase. That means that there's a reference to it in the chapter notes. I know in my own reading, sometimes I'll read something and I'll wonder, is there, is there something in the chapter notes? And I go back and sometimes there isn't, sometimes there isn't. So this lets the reader know that, yes, you know, there is something back there. And um, I've also included two appendices. One is uh, the syllabus from my class that I used to teach at Northern Illinois University. And I hope people elsewhere will start offering classes. It was hard to do it when I started there in the 1980s, but now universities and with all the research going down in medical schools, I think are much more open to it. And I hope people who are teaching at universities will be able to start new courses. And students themselves, you know, can find courses like the, every department has something like special readings in or workshop in or directed readings or special topics and students can approach professors and say well I'd like to do one you know on psychedelics and tell the professor what it is you want to find out or what question you want to ask so there are all kinds of openings now there's also now by the way the intercollegiate psychedelic network you can get it online and um, they're having a conference uh, this spring at Harvard so there's a lot going on in the world of ideas right now. And that's I'm trying to to amplify that and and encourage it. Again, that's the intercollegiate psychedelic network, but well worth getting in touch with. Well, uh, thank you for those suggestions, and it was nice talking to you.
Oh, thanks for getting in touch, and uh, thank you for letting me talk about my favorite thing to talk about. What better way to close this episode than with an amazing Icaro that I've already played once back in episode 11. That's kind of like 250 episodes ago. And it deserves a second play, I think. It's called Icaro della Ayahuasca and it's beautifully sung by Don Evangelino Murayai. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Bon Alchemist, or on Facebook and Instagram, Natural Bon Alchemist. You can also become a patron and support the podcast or send a donation. Just head over to naturalbornalchemist.com. Everything is there. Don't forget to come out today with the hashtag thank you plant medicine and if you're listening to this not on the 20th of february 2020 then come out anyway why not freedom is in the mind Chuya chuya hamping puni, miski nyunyu kwerpu chaita. Talaran la ran la raira, alaran la ran la raira. Talaran la ran la raira, alaran la ran la raira. Tailaran la ran la raira, tailaran la ran la raira, tailaran la ran la raira. Alla Ayahuasca sapping manta, taki taki muiki. Ayahuasca sapping manta, taki taki muiki. Chuya chuya hamping puni. Miski nyunyu kwerpu chaita. Chuya chuya hamping puni. Miski nyunyu kwerpu chaita. Tralaralaran la raira. Ayahuasca Taki taki muiki, ayahuasca lucerito manta, taki taki muiki, chuya chuya hamping puni, miski nyunyu cuerpu chaita, chuya chuya hamping puni, 
Ayahuasca cogollito manta, taqui taqui muiki. Ayahuasca cogollito manta, taqui taqui muiki. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Ayahuasca cielosito manta, taqui taqui muiki. Ayahuasca cielosito manta, taqui taqui muiki. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Ayahuasca chacrunera, taqui taqui muiki. Ayahuasca chacrunera, taqui taqui muiki. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Ayahuasca ticunera, taqui taqui muiki. Ayahuasca ticunera, taqui taqui muiki. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita. Chuya chuya jampimpuni, miski ñuño cuerpo chaita.